Hello and welcome to another installment of Bar Talk Podcast, bringing you everything you need to know about law via discussions, interviews, and news updates. Following is a recording of the Omaha Bar Association Young Lawyers Division, Just the Basic CLE on Criminal Law. The CLE took place on Wednesday, October 25th, 2017. The presenters at the CLE were Jeff Lucian of the law firm Sherber and Wagner in Sarpy County, and Tom Gross of the law firm Sodoro Daily Showmaker and Seldy in Omaha. Enjoy. Uh, Tom Gross, I just moved back to Omaha in May. Prior to that, I was in Scotts Bluff. I was a county attorney uh, out there, a deputy county attorney. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, it's a pretty litigious community. And so tried a lot of cases and learned a lot about criminal law and trial practice in a pretty short period of time. Definitely uh, throw you in the pool, see if you can swim type of place. Luckily, I was able to swim. I wouldn't say I know a ton about criminal law, but probably enough to cover just the basics. Um, Jeff and I are gonna do this little ditty here. Uh, we got a handout. The idea of the handout is if you leave and you wanna refer back to kind of what we covered, uh, you can do that. It's basically a walkthrough of what a criminal case looks like. I don't know if many people here work in criminal law and you're just here to drink and hang out, or if you don't, but if you don't and you work at a law office and someone drops a criminal case on your desk or you put up your own shingle and someone comes up with a criminal case, this will at least give you an idea when talking to a client about what it's going to look like. So, Jeff, you want to tell them about who you are? Yeah, um, Jeff Lucian, like Dave said, I'm at, at Sherber and Wagner. Prior to that, I had my, my own practice for um, two years, mostly focusing on uh, criminal defense. At Sherber and Wagner, I get to do a lot of criminal defense because we have the alternate public defender contract um, with Sarvey County. So I've been there uh, about a year and a half now, and that's... And again, there's probably people in here that know just just as much as I do about criminal law, but we're going to run through, uh, just give a fact pattern here, and then we're going to run through basically all the, um, the stages of what goes on in a criminal case. So I'm going to begin with our, our fact pattern here, and we're just going to give you something that you might run across um, with a client, very common, um, and it's going to be... So we have this uh, fictional character, we'll call him Brad Heisinger, um, and he's you know having some drinks at a bar, having a good time, leaves the bar, makes the poor decision to get in his car and drive. Uh, subsequently, he gets pulled over um, for failing to maintain his lane. Um, they run him through the field sobriety tests, uh, preliminary breath test. He's over the legal limit of 0.08. Um, they arrest him for uh, DUI. And then subsequent uh, to that arrest, there's no one to pick up the car, it's on the street, so they're going to tow it to the impound, they do an inventory search, and in the trunk they find some hash oil. So that's basically our fact pattern, he's now arrested. At that point, it's where the county attorney would come in. Um, so th the way this is going to kind of work is we're going to talk about all the stages, fact pattern, something we can kind of use. I'll kind of be talking about what a county attorney is looking at. Jeff will kind of be giving you a little bit of idea of what the defense attorney is looking at. And at some points, we'll probably disagree about stuff. That's just the nature of it. This is not uh, anything normal. We've also talked about this stuff since 2010. So we got pretty a lot of years of drinking and arguing about criminal law. So uh, at this point, the county attorney is going to get a police report. It's either going to be a police report or an affidavit an affidavit if there's detention, and it's gonna lay out what happened. Now, when Brad Heitzinger gets arrested, he's arrested for DUI, he's booked into the jail. They're probably gonna set a bond for him based on a DUI. When the county attorney reviews the report, they're gonna see that there was a controlled substance in the trunk. And so what they're gonna do is they're gonna have a charging document, a complaint, and the complaint's gonna charge driving under the influence, 0.08, just as your normal violation, and then they're gonna charge uh, possession of a controlled substance with is a felony. Why that might be important is at the time when Mr. Heitzinger gets back to Mr. Lucian, he's probably not going to know that they found the drug. So you might have to uh, 
explain to him uh, when he bonds out or however he bonds out why he has a charge on there that he wasn't arrested for. So Jeff, you can kind of talk a little bit about how you meet with a client and explain to them the process. Yeah, well, and, and first, like the first thing that's gonna um, that's gonna happen, I mean, obviously you can meet with the client. Um, a lot of times you're not gonna have anything more than a complaint that's just, this is what you're charged with. You're probably not, I know, like specifically Douglas County, you're not gonna have police reports available for at least 10, 10 days or so. Um, but you just kind of tell them, this is what you're charged with, these are the potential penalties, this is what I can do for you. Um, and then hopefully they hire you, you're gonna have, if bond is, if it's not a scheduled bond and they're gonna have a bond hearing, um, you're gonna go in, some of the things that you're, you're gonna wanna think about going into bond is the conditions of bond, the different pre-trial release programs uh, that the county you're in has uh, to explore those. And then also you might, if it's obviously a private hire client, discuss a bond assignment with them. Um, so a lot of people can't just come up with uh, a huge retainer right away. So it's, okay, well, here's what your bond set at. You can pay your bond, get out, assign that to me. And then as soon as they're done and sentenced, obviously then the money's all yours. One thing that's kind of interesting about the bonds in Nebraska is we don't have bail bondsmen. So a bond will be set at a large number, say $10,000. What the bond that they post is 10% of that. So that's $1,000 to get out of jail. Then there can be other requirements like you can't drink, you can't leave the state, blah, 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 other things. One thing you have to explain to your client is if they get through the case and they don't violate their bond and their bond isn't taken back by the state, they're going to get $900 back. Less than so it's gonna be $10,000 is the big number, $1,000 to get out of jail, and then it's $100 to pay the state for putting up the money, essentially. So the state intercedes as a bail bondsman. So if you violate your bond, rather than having Dog the Bounty Hunter come after you, you just have a sheriff come after you. So when you have a bond assignment, you have to take 10% of what's posted, and that's how much is gonna be available at the end. Yeah, and then the other thing too is, you know, if you get a guy and the bonds, you can't make bond, it's just set too high. Um, you can always try and do what you can for your client to help them out in the way of, depending on what their issue is, you know, trying to find them a bed at a shelter or trying to get them uh, placement treatment and then file a bond review, take it back in front of the judge and say, you know, judge, this has now changed. This is what's gonna happen. You know, can you reduce his bond commensurate with his ability to pay? Um, so you can, you can file a, with the court and ask for the bond to be reviewed at any time. When you go into a bond review, the legal arguments you're looking at, and I'll talk a little bit about what the prosecutor's gonna say, Jeff can tell you a little bit about uh, what the defense attorney's gonna say, is that the statutes say, what is the likelihood of this person showing back up? And what is the risk of the community by releasing them? So you guys are all smart lawyers, you, or just lawyers. You can figure out how that affects. So if you've got a guy who has a DUI, like in this case, and he was driving at a, a .28 and basically blackout drunk, zombie driving, and he's got five prior DUIs, the county attorney's gonna say, look, this bozo is a drunk. If we let him out on the roads, he's gonna kill someone. And so that's talking about risk to the community, not show back up. If the person has no ties to the state, if they've got a long record out of New York, or they are picked up in a car that's out of New York and they've got no ties, and it's a serious offense, the county attorney's gonna sit and say, look, the guy's got no ties to the community, he's got nowhere to go. If we let him out of jail, he's gone, we're never gonna see him again. And I mean, I guess you, if you're a defense attorney, you're gonna argue the opposite things, like he's got ties to the community, this isn't a serious thing, this was a .09 violation, he's lived here forever, he's got a controlled substance, but it's, Cash, it's just marijuana, it's not really that big of a deal. Those kind of those kind of things. Yeah. He's got a job, he's got, you know, he's got kids he's gotta support, you know, he's not going anywhere, he's got responsibilities he's gonna, you know, take care of that he's been taken care of. So if you show the try and show the judge that. And the other thing too, and we'll I guess we'll get well, we'll get there after um, like bind over. Yeah, but. I mean, I guess I would say most of the time you're going to hear the prosecutor argue rules and duty and the defense attorney argue sympathy. Right, try and personalize the, I mean. This is a real person and the county attorney is going to say, look, he's not a real person, he's just a fact pattern. That's more or less what you're going to hear along the way. Dave? And um, 
isn't it the case that now, after being in the news the past uh, year or so, the, the bonds are being set higher um, because of embarrassing situations with um, Esma Mejia and things like that? Uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that necessarily they're being set higher. I would say, because I know obviously you're talking about Judge Marcuso, um, and that was unfortunate, but I don't, it wasn't, I don't think that was an unreasonable bond in that case that he said, and I don't think that it's necessarily changed. I think maybe he specifically is a little more um, cautious, but um, not really. And they can be, bonds can be all over the place. I mean, you'll have, from judge to judge, I mean, you'll have somebody, you know, on a murder, get a bond set, and you'll have somebody on, a, you know, a really bad assault, and they'll, no bond, just depending on, you know, the the circumstances and the person and like Tom said all those things whether they're from around here flight risk risk the community so and as anyone here has had a case that's ever had any media coverage the media coverage never really thoroughly covers it so um, you know people are people and judges have their own passions and if someone's gotten burned recently they're probably more likely to jack your bond up one little thing before I move on from bond a motion for bond review does not mean a motion to only lower bond so you gotta kind of weigh it a little bit. Sometimes you might have a client who is got a bad record, who has no ties to the community, and who's just short of his bond, and he's saying, please, please file a motion for bond review. If you can lower it $1,000, I can get out. You might have to have a discussion with them that says, look, if I go in front of the judge, he very well may take your $10,000 bond and make it a $50,000 bond because you got a long record, you got no ties. So. Bond review means the judge gets to reset it, not that it's only going to go down or stay the same. And, and along those lines, this actually just happened to me. Um, kind of had pie on my face. So the the report that I got, all the discovery I got from the county attorney's office in Sarby County, you know, it has their record. Um, somehow I didn't have the complete record. And one of the biggest things they're going to bring up, and judges will ask, is how many FTAs do they have? How many failures to appear convictions do they have? Well, this particular individual... And I thought we could get her, her bond lowered. Um, and so I took her in for a bond review, not knowing about, I knew about two of seven failure to appear convictions. So her bond, um, yeah, got jacked from 10,000, 10% to 50,000%, 10%. So that is a very good point. You always wanna make sure that if you're taking them in for a bond review, it's not gonna get worse than uh, it already was. Now that Jeff has said I made a good point, we should probably move on. Um, so the first time the, the client is in the courtroom is either going to be an arraignment or a first appearance. Uh, it's a slight difference. If it's a first appearance, they're read their rights. They're not asked to enter a plea. If it's an arraignment, it's the same thing, but they enter their plea. So in the case of Bradrick Heitzinger, he would have a first appearance because he has a felony. So county court has jurisdiction over misdemeanors. District court has jurisdiction over felonies and misdemeanors. So if you have a case that has both, it's gonna start in county court, it's gonna to go to district court. If it's only misdemeanors, it's gonna stay in county court. So they all start in county court and then they move forward. So uh, Jeff, you can kind of tell a little bit about your first appearance and what you wanna tell a client about. Um, yeah, and you basically just, I mean, the first appearance or the arraignment, it's always more or less, you know, this is a court date and a lot of times clients obviously can get pretty, um, Whenever they have to go to court, they think it's like something's going to happen. It's a big thing, and it's. I always just tell them, literally, nothing is going to happen. You're just going to. Have, we're just going to enter a not. I mean, most often, a not guilty plea, um, and that's all that's that's all that's going to happen at, on that date. Um, and then, so in the case of uh, because there's a felony after the arraignment, uh, where they're just told what they're charged with, and these are the possible penalties, you put in the not guilty plea, and then you're going to have. Um, a preliminary hearing. Um, most, I would say most often, uh, prelims are waived uh, unless you, unless there is like a really glaring issue um, that you really think that you might be able to get it, get the case, because you potentially, at the prelim, the state has to prove, um, not beyond a reasonable doubt, um, but just by probable cause standard, that a felony was committed. Um, which is really not um, a, a super high burden, and most times a prelim is going to consist of 
they're going to bring in one or two officers, whoever wrote the reports, and they're going to just verbatim repeat what's in the report. Yeah, uh, the rules of evidence don't strictly apply. There's no hearsay objections. So they're going to bring in, and they're just going to read the police report or read the probable cause affidavit to you. So uh, most of the time it's not worth doing. I mean, it is an absolute layup as a prosecutor. It's what you give a junior prosecutor and you say, go do a bunch of these. I mean, it's, it's a cakewalk. And really, more often than not, it just pisses the prosecutor off for having to waste their time and the court's time and the officer's time. Uh, so that's kind of when you get into, during this whole process that we're leading into, which is plea negotiations, you gotta kind of balance, you gotta know who you're working with is this something that actually has a likelihood of having a good outcome for my client versus am I just gonna piss off the prosecutor and make the prosecutor mad at my client? So there's a, a little bit there. So there, there are times as a prosecutor when you do a preliminary hearing where you're perfectly fine with it because maybe it's a little bit of a stretch, you're still kind of building up a case. What you got right now is you know probable cause but isn't much more. There are also times where you do it and you write in the file, no deals for this person, you know, I'm, they made me do a preliminary hearing on a case where they had drugs in their pocket. Um, so, uh, and just it is from from my side too. The other two two ways a prelim can sometimes where if a client really really wants a prelim, which they have a right to it, so it can be really useful when you have a client that is being really difficult or is when you know that there's some level of accountability that you know they should be that should be had where they're just like, no, this didn't happen, is you they get a peek at what evidence is against them, and sometimes it's kind of like a come-to-Jesus moment for them where they're like, oh, okay, like, I get it. Um, the, other, the other thing, sometimes, I mean, you don't have a right to discovery before a prelim. Um, so if, I mean, you can go into a prelim and not even have police reports sometimes. Uh, and... So sometimes prelims nice because it's like you're doing a little bit of discovery by just you know putting the cop up there and then having them run through basically what happened. Um, but like again, most times they are waived, and I can say the last prelim that I won, they just turned around and refiled because they can. Um, if it gets dismissed at prelim by the judge who says there's not probable cause that does not preclude the county attorney from just turning around and refiling the charge. Yeah, I, I don't think I ever saw a prelim that the county attorney's office in Scottswell lost and wasn't refiled immediately. So it's kind of a Pyrrhic victory. Uh, yeah, you have a question? I do. Um, so from the defense standpoint, when you've done your prelims, have you ever put on any evidence, put on any witnesses? Um, or, and if, whether you have or not, would you recommend that? Obviously case. I, yeah, it, I mean, it depends. And I have actually called a witness because um, it was on an assault and it was a fight. And it was, you know, a witness that basically it was kind of he said, she said. Um, and it didn't, it still, we still didn't prevail, even though we had, even though I had witness up there saying, you know, like this, this guy basically, you know, threw the first punch and started it, uh, which isn't necessarily, doesn't mean it should or would get kicked um but i have done that before but only that's like the one time i can think of that i actually call my call the defense witness at a preliminary hearing as a prosecutor you're generally licking your chops <laughs> when they put on evidence it's like i know i'm going to get this bound over and now i get a peek at what they're doing so unless you've got a slam dunk most of the time the judge will say you know i would see it in dv cases domestic violence cases they'd put up they put up the person and he or she would say, look, that's not what happened. I lied to the cops, blah, 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 lie, lie, lie. Um, and then the judge would say, well, look, this is what you said at the time. Now you're saying this. If I have to weigh credibility, I'm going to go with what you said at the time. Um, I had a judge out in Scott's Bluff, and everyone's got a different standard for what probable cause is. But he was talking about prelims, and he said it's – I'll use football because that's what he did. He goes, it's like if you kick off – and you're in the end zone and you catch it and then you drop it and you reach down and you grab the ball and then you drop it again and then you reach down and grab the ball and you run out and you get to the one yard line and then you fall down you're like that's probably false <laughs> so i mean judges aren't inclined to kick things at prelims um i would be i would be more i think it's probably a better idea to put an affidavit in 
rather than to put your client on the or a witness on the stand. So once again, rules of evidence pretty much out the window. So you should be able to just say, I have three marked exhibits, exhibit one, two, and three. They're the affidavits of these three people. This is what they saw. You're probably still not going to get any success on it, but at least that way you're not subjecting them to cross-examination. Right. And as, as far as affidavits, like at the pre, uh, the prelim stage, I've done that where I've gotten an affidavit sometimes on, on a DV and where they'll actually, the county attorney will just dismiss before the prelim based on the affidavit. And like one of the, one of the scenarios is where, um, constructive possession, you know, two guys in a car, drugs, nobody claims. Um, and then basically this, I just recently had this happen. One of the guy, he wrote an affidavit saying, it was it was all mine like wasn't his um which basically you know he's i mean that's an admission that's it's a nail but, in the coffin right it's a nail in the coffin so it's like well they got their felony charge on this guy you know we're gonna just dismiss on your guy so you're, you're probably better off going to the county attorney than the judge prior to because the county attorney is going to look at it and say look unless i've got something else I'm not going to waste my time on a case where I know when I go to trial and I have a threshold of beyond a reasonable doubt, I'm going to get smoked. They're going to deal with it. So you're probably better off with going to the county attorney than you are going to a judge. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how to deal with a client and what they can control. And then since it's almost 425, maybe we want to take a little halfway break before we talk about what goes on in district court. So Jeff and I have a disagreement on this. And you guys have clients, so you have your own ways of doing this probably too. Uh, I'm a firm believer when I deal with criminal defendants, when I meet with them, I tell them exactly how it's going to go. And that is, look, you have an absolute right to choose whether you want a trial to a jury or to a judge, whether you want to change your plea. And if we have a trial, whether you want to testify, those are your decisions. I'll talk through them with you, but in the end, you make those choices. Everything else is my choice. You're paying me to do my job. I'm the attorney. You're not the attorney. So when it comes to you, am I going to file a motion to suppress? Am I going to do a preliminary hearing? Am I going to do whatever? I will discuss those things with you. I will explain to you why I'm going to do them. I will listen to what you have to say, but I will make the decision. And if you're not okay with that, you can go find a different lawyer. Because in my experience uh, with people, it's good to have set rules and boundaries. And when you get certain clients that think that they're really smart and think that they know everything because maybe they're successful at something else. They want to tell you what to do. I don't have time for that shit. Um, and yeah, and we are in a little, a little bit of disagreement. I mean, because you certainly, when you have difficult clients that think they know the law and start, they start talking about federal laws that do not apply at the state level. Um, that happens quite often. Um, you know, you do have to wrangle them, but I differ from Tom in that I will explain them you know you have like for example the prelim i will explain to them what it is um that they have a right to it and i will advise them you know usually against like we don't need to have a contested prelim but i always follow it up with ultimately though the decision is yours now if i think that a decision that they're going to make is going to prejudice them in any way or it would be unethical then obviously i make the decision but i also give the client i say you know i'm here to advise you tell you probable outcomes um, and what this means. Uh, whether or not, if you wanna, you know, if you wanna go forward with it. And a lot of times when I find when you explain it to clients that way, that they're gonna make the decision that I would, you know, want them to make anyway. You know, when I tell them what a prelim is and describe it, they're usually like, oh yeah, let's, yeah, we can, well, let's waive it. And I was like, yeah, let's, that's what we'll do. So I guess you just kind of got to know who you are. I'm more of a control freak. Jeff's more of a trust other people to make good decisions. I just don't. Well, and if they make the wrong one, like I said, if it's going to be something that it's, I will just say, no, we're not, we're not doing that. We're not moving forward that so way. So you tell them it's their choice, but in the end, it's yours. Um, so Makes them when feel you, better. When you get upstairs, you have an arraignment. That's the same thing. They read the charges. They tell you what your, uh, what your rights are. They tell you, you know, you can plead. Uh, these are the things you can plead, not guilty, guilty, no contest. No one ever pleads guilty or no contest when they get to arraignment. Um, and then we're going to move into pretrial. We're going to talk about what kind of motions you can file, what you're going to do to try and help your client. We were going to start talking about what goes on in district court. So back to the fact pattern of Brad Heitzinger pulled over for DUI. 
He's got a possession charge. That's the charge that's going to get you the felony. The felony is what gets you the preliminary hearing. And the waiver or the bind over is what gets you to district court. Judge is going to read the rights, tell you what you're charged with, what the possible penalties are, enter your plea. And then we get into the uh, pretrial stage. And this is where you're going to file a lot of your motions. We're going to talk about a uh, motion for discovery. We're going to talk about uh, motions to continue and the effects on speedy trial. Talk about motions to suppress, Brady requests, and uh, motions in lemonade and custodial statements. And that'll kind of be what we're going to cover here. Probably start off with how it actually starts off, and that's the defense attorney getting after it. Right. Um, so right off the bat, first thing you're going to do, and actually I'll just go way back to the beginning. The first two pleadings that you're going to want to file on any criminal case, you're going to want to file an appearance of counsel. And I always followed up, and it's different from county to county what they're looking for, but I always file an appearance of counsel and um, a stipulation for uh, mutual, dis you know, mutual reciprocal discovery. Um, I don't want to tell them what that means. So basically, they're just, it's just the, you sign off on it, county attorney will sign off on it, and it just means, you know, you're going to basically give me what you guys have as far as police reports, evidence, any um, video or dash cam. And when I say it varies from county to county, it really does. If you're in Douglas County and it's a misdemeanor and you're dealing with the city prosecutor's office, they actually have um, what, what they call yellow cards. And... You go in, well, you would. You can also have a file-bound account, which they upload all of their police reports and everything to file-bound. And if you have a bar number in the state of Nebraska, you can get a file-bound account. Um, and you'd be able to pull, just pull up without even requesting um, at least the police reports. If you think, and I always make a habit of this in Douglas County with the city prosecutor's office, that might not be all they have because they might have you know, dash cam, audio, body cam. So I always, on every case, make a point of it. You go physically to the city prosecutor's office, ask for a yellow card, fill out the yellow card, and make the specific request for any video or audio. Because um, otherwise, you might they might have it, and they might not necessarily um, turn it over. So that's um, a note on there. But that's just it. You're just, You're asking them for discovery, which they're going to have to give you anyway. And usually it's not, I mean, it's, the county attorney is not going to put up a big fight unless you're asking for something that's medical records where it's like victims, medical records or something, and they're trying to protect their victim and, you know, don't want you to have um, some sort of discovery like that. I don't know if. Yeah, for the most part, I mean, you don't object giving up what, it, there's statutory discovery requirements, and as long as you're asking for mutual and reciprocal statutory discovery, no one's going to fight you on it. Uh, the mutual and reciprocal means that if you've got stuff, you're going to want to enter a trial, you got to give it to them too. It's nothing groundbreaking. Discovery process is show me what you're doing, I'll show you what I'm doing. Uh, I will say it's important to follow up with the county attorney about the audio video because frequently you get uh, police reports pretty quickly. Those are pretty easy to transfer. Sometimes it takes a while. Uh, look at police reports. Sometimes they'll say uh, body cam running, in-car running. That is not um, set in stone. Sometimes that's on there, but it's not true. It's not that anyone's lying or trying to hoodwink you. Sometimes stuff gets in reports that just doesn't belong there. But look and see if they've got it because otherwise you're relying on what the officer has decided to say about what happened rather than seeing everything that happened. So body cam and in-car can be very helpful finding extra evidence. It can be helpful finding other people that were there. Uh, it can also be helpful when we get to motions to suppress when you're talking about whether there was consent to search. It can be helpful with talking about whether there was actual uh, violation in the case of Brad Heitzinger with uh, the driving. So those are things that you're really gonna wanna uh, be thorough with. Be patient with the county attorney uh, it's my experience that uh, you've got more stuff than you know what to do with, and so it might take a while. Uh, just be patient, continue to pester them, talk to the office, ask them who to talk to. Sometimes people have um, evidence custodians. The other thing is there can be evidence um, that is not a police report and not audio video. <coughs> the hash oil in Brad's case, or um, if there's a case involving a weapon or a case involving drugs and you want to see that, uh, you're going to need to talk to the county attorney's office in terms of how do you go see those things. So, 
You want to talk about motion to continue? Yeah, and that brings us to um, a lot of times, you know, you, you're going to have a pretrial scheduled pretty quickly after after the arraignment. Um, and I would say quite often you're at your first pretrial, you're going to just you're going to ask for a continuance to, well, either continue plea negotiations, uh, you know, get all your discovery because you likely do not have all of your discovery. Uh, the important thing to note, though, about um, making a motion to continue as a defense is that basically it stops the uh, speedy trial, the six months speedy trial clock stops at that point. Um, if the state, if it's on the state's motion, it does not. But if you make a motion to continue um, on the defense side, that right to speedy trial stops until basically the next the next hearing. Mm-hmm. Uh, which sometimes it's helpful if the state hasn't gotten you discovery to ask the prosecutor, say, look, I haven't gotten the discovery yet. Why don't you file a motion to continue? A lot of times they'll do it because they know that they're the ones that's jamming everything up. Sometimes they'll do it because they're not paying attention. But that way your speedy trial clock continues to run and you might get a get out of jail free card because they don't get it done fast enough. Yep. So that's something that's a, a tactical thing to look at. If, if it's something that you're doing, uh, then it's pretty much going to be on you as a defense attorney. But if it's something that the prosecutor has failed to get done in a timely manner, once again, it pays to have a good relationship with your prosecutor. Uh, but you might ask them to file the motion. If that's the case, then sometimes you won't even have to have the client show up. You don't risk them failing to appear, and it's not going to stop the speedy trial. Uh, I'm sorry, Yeah. Is that the same for any type of motion you file, a motion to suppress? Or yeah. And I was, yeah, I was going to. Yeah. So any any motion filed by the defense, not just to continue, but the motion to continue specifically because it might be, you know, you really need to think about, I mean, are we gonna, am I asking for 30 days? Am I asking for 60? Am I asking for 90 days? What if you have a motion, you, 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 have, you go in, you have your hearing, you're waiting forever for the order. That's uh, the stops the clock until you get the order. And you can move forward with the case, I would assume. Oh, are you talking about, so after you have a hearing on the motion, you're waiting right. for the order. Um, yeah, technically it is from the date that the order is file stamped. So, so that, I mean, the speedy trial really more comes into play, I would guess, when your client's in jail. Right. When they're out and free, it ain't a huge deal. Right. But if they're sitting in jail, you know, that can, that can play a lot into it. And the prosecutors know that. And they'll use it for leverage to get the result that they want. So if your client's sitting in jail, they might use it as leverage to say, look, you know, this guy wants to get out of jail. Why don't you just have him plead to this? A lot of times you'll say, it also brings into play, this getting into plea negotiations, jumping a little bit forward, but he'd been sitting in jail for 45 days. Why don't you just have him plead to the charges that I want and I'll recommend time served. So he's done. But- uh, that, ha- that happens a lot. Yeah. And, the, and your client, whether or not they want to. And sometimes, obviously as a defense attorney, I get a little frustrated because I don't want them to so, I mean, there's instances where I don't want them to take that deal. I don't think it's good, but they've been sitting for so long. They're just mm-hmm. like, you know, I just want out, so I'll just, nope, I'll take it. Time served. You mean I'll get, like, as soon as we take it in for sentence, I'll be done? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, oh, yep. Plus, one thing that you have to pay attention to there is there are certain crimes, at least in Nebraska, there are certain crimes that are enhanceable, and there are certain crimes that come with further consequences. Uh, DUIs do, but domestic violence is enhanceable. Uh, so if you have another domestic violence charge, so if they say, We'll give you a, you plead to the domestic violence and we'll give you time served versus you plead to a third degree assault or disturbing the peace or attempted assault or fight by mutual consent and something different. That's something you got to explain to your client that is, look, next time you get in a fight with someone, if they arrest you, it's a felony. Uh, so there are certain charges and that's something you're going to look and do and see what the charges are that are enhanceable that can play into that. Um, so some other pretrial things you're going to want to deal with is if you're a defense attorney, you want to file a Brady request. The Brady standard is already on a prosecutor, but it makes it, uh, you have a better standard if you appeal based on Brady material. And Brady request is basically saying, look, anything that the state has in its custody or control that is exculpatory to my client needs to be turned over. The one thing that will infuriate a prosecutor faster than anything is to say, hey, why don't you go find that third party that has nothing to do with being part of the state and go get me a video from Walmart. That's Brady material. It's not. If the cops have it, 
If a state agency has it, if the county attorney has it, that's Brady. It's not my job to go find your discovery for you. So once again, working with the prosecutor, if you ask nicely, they might do it for you because they realize that sometimes you don't have the resources that they do. And hopefully you're dealing with a prosecutor that wants a fair result and isn't trying to hide evidence. But don't go to them and say, it's your obligation to get this for me. So that's Brady material. Um, that doesn't come up too much. Uh, if you've got someone, if you've got a client who's selling you a story and it seems like something that should be evidence, that might be something you want to consider. Um, and then the other thing you're going to want to consider, and this goes back to body cam and audio, is if your client has made statements to the officers. You have Miranda and you have, um, you have a question of whether those statements are voluntary. So Miranda is going to be anything statements made prior to the Miranda rights being that is either from while the client is in custody, that is a answer to a question or answer to some sort of activity that's built to elicit a answer um, that's done before Miranda can be potentially taken out. The other one is if your client makes a confession, you got to do whatever you can to try and get it out. And so you want to look at whether it's voluntary or not. Uh, those are things you're going to want to look into. If you uh, think you have an issue with that, it's definitely something you want to research. And I would recommend calling someone that practices criminal law frequently. And both Jeff and I will give anyone um, our information if you ever have questions for us or if you know someone else that does it. But those are things that you're going to want to look for um, to try and pare down the evidence. Yes, sir. Going on the uh, Brady subject a little bit more, uh, I was in law school in Georgia. It was quite a while ago. And uh, in one summer, I interned and did a lot of research on cases involving Brady. Uh, so this is way back in the day. But what I recall is that there was a tremendous amount of uh, litigation in, in regarding Brady uh, and the duty to disclose. So um, things may have changed based on what you said. Like the rules tightened up or practice is kind of caught up with reality as opposed to the theoretical realities of Brady. But what I was wondering is uh, how does a defense person know if the uh, state has you know, given you all the exculpatory evidence that they have? I mean, if you don't know about it, how do you know if they have? Do you just trust the state? Uh, well, you don't know. I mean, sometimes you might. You know, if you've got a client that says, look, you know, there, there's something here that should have been evidence. There should be some documentation of it. But most of the time what you're doing is you are making the request to preserve an issue for appeal. And so that if you do find out in the meantime and they try the case and you go, look, you didn't show me piece of evidence A that's exculpatory, then when you go to appeal, you have a easier threshold, and I can't remember what the exact threshold is. You have an easier threshold to show that there was exculpatory evidence and it would have changed the outcome. I get it. So filing it is really more of an issue for appeal than it is anything else. Any ethical prosecutor, which you hope anyone you deal with in any aspect of your life is ethical, is gonna hand over anything they know or they're just gonna straight dismiss it because they find out. But um, if you do have something specific, it's important to alert your prosecutor to it. And third is, if you want something that's from a third party, so you've got a, a maybe a common thing you might have is a shoplift. Um, if you want the video, which they should probably be getting anyways, but if you want the video, don't turn to them and say, look, go get the video from Walmart, it's Brady. Unless the cops have, it's a state control thing. So if you want the video from Walmart and it's a pain for you to get, you can ask them. But you're, you're going to annoy someone if you go up and say, give me that, it's Brady. And so that's, that's just a little ditty on Brady. It doesn't have a lot of application. Of course. Um, motion to suppress? Uh, yeah, well, I guess that's a huge one. Um, uh, motion to suppress. Uh, Fourth Amendment might be my favorite amendment. Because uh, it makes sure that you know, uh, the police are doing their, their job correctly more or less. Uh, and in this case with Brad Heitzinger, we stated, if you recall, that he got pulled over for um, failure to maintain lane. And so in this hypothetical, emotion express would be very support, very important because you look at, the first thing you're gonna look at is, what was the reason for the stop? Um, and is there a reason to file a motion to suppress based on 
they didn't have probable cause for the stop. Uh, and in Nebraska, there's a case, State v. Alley, that says more or less just failure to maintain lane is not uh, probable cause alone to initiate a stop. Can you clarify what that means, failure to maintain lane? So, so basically, I guess I can give you a quick, I don't want to get too much into it, but basically if a, a police officer, so the case basically says that there can be lawful reasons for someone to deviate from their lane. You know, if there's an obstacle in the road, if there's, so if somebody just one time goes over the line or touches it, I mean, if you're swerving back and forth, different story, but just, you know, going over the line, failure to maintain lane once, not enough because there is lawful reasons why you would have to deviate from your lane. Which that's goes, which that's goes, the case law, I mean, essentially. Um, it's Stevie, and I don't know exactly how to pronounce it, but it's A-Y-E. Which goes back to one named Dash Cam. You know, if, if they're pulling you over because of a driving infraction, then you're going to want to see the dash cam. Um, and, and basically, I mean, we could spend hours talking about Fourth Amendment issues. The question you need to ask yourself is, at each point that the state asserts some authority over your liberty, whether it is a stop, whether it's a continued stop, whether it's a search, whether it's a search of your property, you have to stop at each point. And what I would always do is write down, and I would say 0 0.1, 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5. Did they have a reason to do it at each time? So in Brad's case, did they have a reason to stop the vehicle? Did they have a reason to turn the stop and do the standard field sobriety tests? After those were done, did they have enough probable cause to make an arrest? And then what did they do with the car? Well, they impounded the car because no one was there to able to drive it. Well, did they have a right to search that vehicle do they have a right to search the trunk? And so you need to look at each one of those points, and I'm kind of expediting this just because we're running short on time. You need to look at each one of those points, and you need to look, does the state have a right to have infringed on my liberty at each one of these times? And the things you're looking for is, is there a search warrant? And if there is, is it within the scope of the search warrant? And if there's not, you need to look at your exceptions, and those are consent, inventory search, search incident to arrest, uh, the vehicle exception. Exigent circumstances. Exigent circumstances. So, you have a, a question? Why do they need an inventory search of the trunk when the keys under the state's control? Because what happens, and this is basically the same thing, and I'm talking for as a prosecutor, this is the same thing that happens when you book someone into jail. When they're taking control over someone or something, they inventory exactly what they have. So when that person gets out of jail, or that person gets their car back, they don't go, I had $100,000 in a gold Rolex in there. So the, you know, the, the policy behind it is they want to inventory to make sure that when they take it back, they can say we have everything that we had when you took it. Now, officers use it as a reason to search your shit, but. Yeah, I was just going to, I have to, sorry, I have to touch on that. Yeah, so the policy is to protect, you know, the municipality, the, the city, county, whatever, the government from lost and stolen property claims while property's in their possession. Um, but I firsthand have seen where it's, oh yeah, sure, they inventoried the quarter pound of weed in the trunk, but they didn't inventory the wallet with his credit cards in it that was left in his door. Sure, which is a so, boo-hoo argument, but it's not know, a legal argument. It's not a legal argument, I'm just, you know. Yeah, no, absolutely. The policy behind it isn't sometimes how it's executed. Don't go to a judge with it, though. Don't go to no, a judge no. and say, that's not an inventory search. He didn't, you know, say that there was four pieces of popcorn underneath the seat. I mean, they don't care. Poor quality inventory search. Well, sure, you can say that he's not a very good cop. I mean, you might be able to bring it up at a trial and impeaching the cop and say, "Why did you search a vehicle?" Well, we did it for this. And you go in there and you say, "Well, you didn't inventory this. You didn't inventory that. You didn't." That's a trial practice issue, which we don't have. Yeah, we're like, not near enough time. But that's those are the things you need to look at when you're looking at a motion to suppress. Each time the state asserts authority over your liberty whether it is the right to leave or the right to search your stuff, they need to have a reason to do it. Um, so once you're done with, uh, and then we have motions and eliminate, anyone who does trial practice, something you don't, you think there's an issue for the judge, get it done before you go to trial. And a prosecutor loves nothing more than a defense attorney that does that and doesn't show up on the day of trial and say, oh, hey, there's that six minute segment in the middle of uh, your four hour video. I don't want that. Well, I don't have editing software with me, so you should have done this before. So motion and eliminates are the same there. I think they most frequently come up with videos, body cam, in car. 
because there's a lot of things that are said during interactions between police officers and defendants that is not admissible. So watch your videos, watch your body cams, watch your audio. If you have anything that has um, a controlled buy and a drug sale or anything like that, watch all that stuff. Take notes. I think this is objectionable. I think this is objectionable. Go to your county attorney. Most of the time, they'll just edit it out with going to, without going to a judge. But if there's something that needs to be put in front of a judge, do it ahead of time. And it's another thing, kind of like the Brady request. If you you know you file a motion to eliminate, you don't get what you want. It's again, and then at trial, you you know renew that objection to whatever's coming in. You know, it, it's it's good for appeal processes too, just to say you know I not only you know. Not once, but twice. Um, you know, yeah, you're just creating a better record. You got a way better record. You're not dealing with a. You're taking the jury out of the box and trying to get it done quickly. You have time to be able to present to the judge and form a much better record. You can just renew your objection at the trial. And if you've got something that's an issue, it's easier for an appellate review to look back and say you were right, they were wrong. So um, next thing is now that you've whittled down, you see what your evidence is, what's your universe. The prosecutor is going to look at it and see how strong is my case. The defense attorney is going to look at it and see how strong is the prosecutor's case. Uh, as a prosecutor, you look at what's this person's criminal history like? What's the nature of the offense? How can I stop them from doing this again? And you try and work together to come up with a plea that gets you as a prosecutor what you want and a defense attorney and their client something that they think is fair. And Jeff can kind of talk to you a little bit about what um, type of things you're looking at as a defense attorney in terms of when you go to a prosecutor and you say, this is what we want and this is why we want it. Right. And I guess the biggest thing, and we are in a short time, so I'm going to kind of, but the biggest thing is, like in this scenario where you have, you have a felony, the biggest thing is, you know, especially if you do not have a prior felony, the biggest thing is we want the felony to go away. Um, just because obviously being a convicted felon, you lose some rights and it can, you know, be a hurdle in for the, you know, the rest of your life, more or less. In the state of Nebraska, there's also, uh, you know, there's no felony expungement. So I mean, unless you get a governor, unless you get a governor's pardon, your that felony is on your that's with you for the rest of your life. Which ties um, into some of those other ones: domestic violence, strangulation, DUIs. Those ones that are enhanceable. Sometimes you might want to put more money or more effort into getting that knocked down and maybe have a worse sentence versus vice versa that's right that, there's having, an art there's an art to it there is an art but like that's the biggest thing is just like especially it's just like you know can't I and mean, i find myself a lot of times literally sometimes begging the county attorney like i know you got him you know probably have my client dead to rights but honestly again like personally you know make them a person to the county attorney like hey they don't have any priors you know he's married he's got three kids like he has this great job that he's gonna lose can you please just give him a class one misdemeanor like you know um and then a lot of it is uh sometimes county attorneys or city prosecutors that we're working with they'll want they'll be like well you gotta get, like i want to maybe give you a misdemeanor but you gotta like give me something in the way of a motion to suppress to at least raise some issue you know um because i've also been in front of judges where you get a good you get a really good plea deal and obviously they're not bound by that plea deal you go in front of them and i've seen um, a couple judges ask the county attorney or the city prosecutor, why is this guy getting such a good deal? You know, and then at least if I have filed a motion to suppress, that county attorney or prosecutor can tell the judge, well, there is a potential, you know, um, suppression. suppression issue. So, you so, know, we worked it out that way. Um, and, it, and, it, and I'm not saying that it's just a, you know, an empty, like, there wasn't really a, an issue. But you got to at least, you know, um, you know, you give some effort. Proactive. And, right. So after plea negotiations, either you have a change of plea or you have a trial. Those end in either change of plea always ends in guilty or no contest, which only makes difference maybe in civil judgments with the rules of evidence, only if it's a felony, stuff that's not really all that important right here. Um, and at a change of plea, they're going to go back through your rights, tell you all that, ask you want to change your plea, da-da-da. Uh, at trial... You know, those go, and if it ends in guilty, you end up in the same spot in that sentencing. Sentencing, um, you know, if you talk to your prosecutor, you probably know what they want. Um, if you've talked to your client and listened to the judge, you probably know what they want. It's your job to explain to the judge 
why you want what you want. And almost all that information comes from the criminal history and the pre-sentence investigation. Uh, and that is going to be available to both the prosecutor and the defense attorney. I think you are begging to be made a fool of if you show up for a sentencing and haven't read it. Um, it's going to have psych evals, substance abuse evals, uh, questions, batteries of exams, criminal history, everything. So whether you're a, a prosecutor who's saying, look, he's antisocial, he's got a bad criminal history, he's got prior instances of assault, this is an assault, you know, doing probation doesn't do anything, it's made for people with substance abuse problems or uh, psychological problems, so put him in jail, or a defense attorney who's saying, well, basically the opposite. Yeah, basically the opposite, and sometimes um, if you, it, I mean, in Technically, it's it's up to the court, it's up to the judge. But if you can get them to, there's instances where you know this PSI is going to be real bad for your client because he just does not have a great record. You can try and get the court, you know, on the date of the plea to say, you know, Your Honor, we're ready to proceed directly to sentencing today. We'd like, you know, we request that we waive the PSI. Um, also, could be helpful if you've got a client that has a bad PSI, would have a bad PSI. Another reason to ask for time served if they're sitting in jail. Right. Time served at that time, boom, boom, change of plea, time served, you're done. You don't have to expose your client to showing that he's got a terrible history or that he's an antisocial person or that he's a risk of the community or anything else. And if your client doesn't want probation, that's something you got to talk to him about. Um, yeah. I have judge after judge after judge say, look, I don't think you are ready for probation. I'm, I will put you on it if you can convince me that you're ready for it, but there's no point in putting you on probation and then wasting the state's money and six months later you come back, your probation's revoked, and we're right back to where we were. So those are all conversations you have to have with your client. The last thing I would say is I've seen more uh, defendants. The majority of defendants don't do anything with allocution, the right to talk. I've seen more people hurt themselves than help themselves. So... Um, you know, this is my advice every time I've dealt with a criminal defendant. Show up to trial, show up to every hearing like it's your job interview. The first time you see your prosecutor is your first appearance. Show them you're not, a, a, you're not the person that they're reading about. Yeah, show up in a, put a button up shirt and some pants on. Look, look, like, a, look like a human. You know, it's your job interview. You wouldn't show up to a job interview in jeans and a Metallica shirt. Um, Show show up in pants and and not with not with weed leaf print yeah. like hats or shirts or I had, or a shirt that says only God can judge me yeah uh, I, had, I had a guy who showed up with an only God can judge me Tupac shirt and I was sitting there going yeah go ahead buddy you talk you you'll do more damage to yourself than I can but what I've told defense uh, defendants is if, unless you're gonna sit up there and say I apologize for what I did what I did was wrong I'm taking steps to rehabilitate myself don't say anything at all. Um, and uh, then, well, the other thing I was going to say is, uh, again, like talking about them, whether or not they'd be successful on probation or whether they want to do probation. Cause I have, I have clients where I can just tell it's like a guy that, you know, likes to drink, whatever, got a DUI. No, he probably doesn't want like an, an adult babysitter for a year. Um, and would rather just do a straight sentence, no probation and just do, you know, seven days of house arrest. And that's also something you need to look into is varying counties, they're really different on how they do their house arrest or their work release. Uh, Douglas County is really good about it. Uh, you just call a guy by name Mike Rupiper uh, that runs it. You can get him, you know, basically pre-approved before you even go in for sentencing. So you can indicate to the judge they've already been screened. They're going to do house arrest. Um, Sarpy County is now starting to uh, basically just starting their house arrest and work release program because the jail's so overcrowded right now. Um, but that's always something to like think like think about and talk with your client is, do you want to be on, I mean, do you think you'll be successful? Because that's the other thing with, you know, people that have, might have substance abuse problems. I'm, I'm not here to, you know, I'm not your therapist. I'm not here, here to, I'm here to just whatever and think about the time and resources that also might be wasted if you're going to get on probation, you're going to be on probation for two months and you're going to violate, you're going to come right back into the system pick up a whole new charge on the violation of probation so talk about another layup as a prosecutor violation of probation and you can have a child do it it's uh, not as easy as it gets and i guess so we are pretty much like out of time the one last thing i want to uh, cover um 
Well, first of all, if you have a trial and you have a client, make a habit of, in writing, notifying them of their right to appeal, that they have 30, 30 days to appeal. And if they're kind of lukewarm about it, but they're being, if you get any inkling that they want to appeal, file the notice of appeal, because technically you have a duty to do that. Um, and you really just don't want to miss an appeal deadline as a defense attorney, because that's, uh, you know, you had a client comes back 31 days after the sentencing order went out, and you're like, well, you missed, you know, you missed your appeal date. You're really going to look not great if you didn't tell them, or if they're going to try and turn around and say, you never told me. And it's like, the hell I didn't. Ass. I've got this letter in writing that I gave to you, so I've got a copy of it. You knew about it. When dealing with criminal defendants, cover your ass. Um, last thing, probably most important, the last most important thing is the set-asides. Um, if you've got someone that comes to you and says, look, I'm having trouble getting into occupational therapy school or law school or any CNA school, anything like that, or I'm having trouble getting a job because when I was at 19, I got an assault, I had a $100 fine. Um, you can petition the court to set aside the conviction. It's not a pardon, it's not an expungement. It doesn't mean it's gone, but it's basically the court saying, this person's okay. Um, the things you gotta look for there are, is it an encumbrance? Is the conviction an encumbrance on this person pursuing basically further academic or further work um, opportunities? And you have to look at what happened. It has to be a misdemeanor or less, and it cannot have a jail sentence at all as a part of it. So fine probation. If probation is, yeah, six months of probation, and oh, hey judge, uh, they gave you three days served, can't do it. So no jail sentence, which not only plays into um, if you're doing a motion to set aside, but also if you have a client that's got a, a peddly crime and the judge is gonna give them a day served in time credit towards their fines or anything else, say, judge, we don't want it. I don't want your day served. I'll pay the extra $90 if this is someone that might want a motion to set aside. So if you've got a friend that's got a kid or a friend or whatever else, someone that's got a minor crime that they're pleading to and they're gonna get a sentence that doesn't involve jail and the judge is about to give them time credit for served or time for credit for time served or any of the other jazz, tell the judge I don't want it. Say, judge, we might wanna have this set aside in the future. If you give them one day credit for time served, that's going to uh, block this person from that opportunity. Please don't do that. Yeah, and then like I said, just pardons, there's no felony expungement in the state of Nebraska, so if it's a felony conviction, your only relief is to seek a governor's pardon. Um, Good luck. And, uh, well, I, if, if I always tell people, because I have some t people come back three, four years out from a felony conviction, and I always tell them just rule of thumb, like, you're going to want to wait at least seven, and you probably should have not picked up any charges um, in that time, because yeah. then you're kind of going to be dead in the water. I've only got um, a couple other assaults since right. then. I mean, um, and then. And then the last thing I just want to address is um, nunk-pro-tunks, um, which if you litigate, you know what that is, but it's more or less supposed to be, you know, a Scrivener's error where we're going back and you're having a judge modify their previous order. And where that comes in is um, on, on DUIs in Nebraska, the laws changed in 2012 where you're basically, even on a 15-year license revocation, so on a third offense DUI, you're automatically eligible for the interlock. Um, that changed, and now people, even though it's kind of not technically proper procedure, um, judges get it that a 15-year revocation with, of no drive time, especially living in a, you know, an area like Omaha or in the state Nebraska, of Nebraska, Iowa, is pretty Kansas. much, I mean, it's, especially if you live in a rural area, and you just can't drive a car for 15 years. So what they're doing is now that they changed the legislation, even if you had a conviction prior to the change in 2012, they're pretty openly letting people bring them back in on a nunk pro tunk and ordering the interlock on 15 year revocations. So. Because if you get picked up on a 15 year revocation, it's a felony. Yeah. Um, all right, I think we're done. If anyone has questions. You can ask. If you guys want to leave, you can go. I think you probably fulfilled your hour obligation of listening to us dribble.